Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm joined with my partner and fearless leader, Chief Strategy Officer Libby Rodney. Libby, how are you? Great, John. How are you? I'm really good. We have a very special episode. We are actually joined by a really fantastic analyst, Dami Rosanwo, who is not only from the Harris Poll, Libby, she's been so busy that she decided to take on an extra job, which is to be a public policy candidate at the University of Chicago. Dami, how are you? I'm doing well. How are both of you? We're doing great. And we're we're honored to have you and talk about a very special episode, which is financial inequity in America. We're going to take this on as our first part of a, of a two-part series on inequities. And Libby and Dami, as you know, this data came out of work that, that we did from a U.S. News and World Report Harris Poll special survey that was presented last week at the State of Equity in America conference in Midtown here in Manhattan. And uh, we're going to get right into the data, but I wanted to just say that it was a, a really interesting discussion over the entire day. We, we focused on financial inequity, which we're going to hit on here today, and also health inequity. And the specific panel that, that sort of came after the plenary that we gave was moderated by Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation. And there was just some very interesting discussions from folks like Catherine Wilde, who's the president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City, Marissa, uh, Maria, rather, Torres Springer, who's the deputy mayor for economic and workforce development. And and even Jennifer Jones Austin, who's just an amazing speaker and analyst and CEO from the Federation of uh, Protestant Welfare Agencies. So a lot to get into, but I thought what I might do is maybe kick it off with a little bit of, of data that we're going to talk about uh, around financial inequity in the context of BIPOC versus Americans. And the place I wanted to start was our stacked crises. And Libby, we've talked a lot about this on the show, but what was really notable in the data was there's a difference between sort of how Americans at large think about the economy, which means that they have macro worries. They're worried about economy and inflation, but people of color are focused on micro worries, which is more about their personal economy. Three quick examples. We found that 88% of white Americans are very concerned about the economy and inflation at large, which is a nine point difference from BIPOC Americans. But where it gets micro is the flip. BIPOC women who make under $50,000 a year were 85% concerned about affording their living expenses versus only 69% of white Americans. And then lastly on this, losing one's job, 56% of Hispanics are concerned about that versus only 45% of white Americans. So, you know, some very different numbers there. Yeah. And something else we saw, John, was that these stack crisis don't just impact the way that BIPOC Americans are experiencing, you know, overall economic worries, but actually have implications to their jobs and incomes and financial support that they provide their families. So for mm. example, we see that more BIPOC Americans because of the inflation impact, have sought out new or additional income at 43% versus 39% of white of Americans. That's a 4% spread. We also saw that they have lost income partially or fully mm. at 33% BIPOC Americans, 28% white. That's a 4% spread. And they have also are claiming that they might miss or soon will miss bill payment at 28% versus 25% white Americans. So there's, there's a, you can see over across the board that it's a little dialed up on all these harsh kind of economic feelings that we're having. But I think what's the most interesting 
is that 40% of BIPOC Americans are also providing financial support to family members versus 30% of white Americans. So there's this kind of selflessness there that we're seeing in the BIPOC community that if one of my family members is in a need, I will do whatever it takes to support them during this time. And so there's this real kind of collectiveness that's happening there, but it's also increasing the the pressure that we see across the board. That's really interesting. I mean, so Dami, what role do you think, you know, as Libby was presenting this data that social structures play in these poor reported outcomes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we are looking at, you know, the role of social structures in regards to the data that we've been discussing, I, I think one really interesting thing to look at here is, is the question of whether people do in fact believe that systemic racism actually exists in the U.S. And on the surface, six in 10 Americans, about 59%, believe that there is systemic racism. However, four in 10, about 41%, remain unconvinced that systemic uh, racism exists in the country today. Um, this is actually even higher among white Americans at 47% versus 41% for the general population. When we start to dig into this a little bit deeper, when we're looking at black Americans, they agree that systemic racism is actually responsible for a lot of the disparities that they're seeing. And on top of that, more Black Americans strongly agree that it's really important for society to address the impacts of these discriminatory practices. They're saying this at, you know, about 50% of the time compared to white Americans at about 36% of the time. So that's quite a gap of about 14 points. And that that's a gap that we're seeing, you know, consistent consistently, I should say, between the two groups. I think one thing to note here, too, is that this number, those who actually saw systemic racism as being a problem in the United States was much higher during the pandemic at about 73%. And so it, it's, it, it kind of begs the question of, you know, why is that number so much lower now? And I think one really good hypothesis for this is that, you know, when we're leaving things to the public consciousness to kind of figure out what is being a priority, if it's not being mentioned as much in the news, if it's not, you know, sort of front of mind or, or being talked about in the media the way it was during a lot of the protests that we saw during 2020, during the height of the pandemic, uh, you know, consumer mindsets, consumer attention spans have become a little bit shorter and have become a little bit more limited. And so when things aren't, you know, as frequently discussed, there is this tendency to think that things have been kind of resolved. And that might be what's going on here in terms of how this number has fluctuated over time and why we're seeing that disparity between people of color and white Americans. But curious as to what your thoughts might be on this as well. I think that's really interesting. And it was also interesting of note that you had 53% white Americans believing that systemic racism exists. Dami, only 36% feel it's important to address. And so again, you see that sort of malaise, whether that's that point about like this problem is solved, we don't need to do anything about it. But that's like 17 points, guys. That's a difference in sort of you accepting yeah. something and, and acting on it. And then the other interesting thing I think about this research is that yet 72% of Gen Z believe there's systematic racism in America. Mm. And I versus 48% of boomers. So there's also wow. a generational awakening of mm -hmm. what is society going to look like in the future and what are the demands of younger generations of figuring out these systematic inequalities that are inherent at the system-based level. That's a great point. And Libby, let's go a little bit deeper on that because I know you study a lot on investing, but you've got some sure. interesting takes on this too. Yeah. So these inequities extend to investing. I mean, if you look at just financial inequality as a whole, there's a reason that there's historical reason that there's a lot of financial inequality in this country. 
history. And so when you ask Black, Hispanic, and LBGTQ AI Americans, do they feel fairly treated or unfairly treated by banking and loan institutions? They feel, for the most part, unfairly treated by banking and loan institutions. Mm -hmm. So we see 68% of Black Americans, 66% of Hispanic Americans, and 63% of LGBTQ AI Americans feeling unfairly treated by these institutions, which could be small business loans, which could be student loans, which could be housing loans, mortgages, all of these things that really allow people to build financial stability in their lives. And so in turn, basically what's happened is you see this great interest in an alternative. And that alternative to date has been cryptocurrencies. And whether it will be cryptocurrencies or something else in the future is to be determined. But this idea that Black Americans and Hispanic Americans and LGBTQ Americans, they are investing in cryptocurrencies at greater percentages, 20% gaps over white Americans. See 40% of Black, 46% of Hispanic, and 40% of LGBTQ AI Americans investing in those cryptocurrencies versus just 24% of white Americans. And they feel fairly treated, the word fair is in there, by <laughs> cryptocurrency markets at a much higher percentages. So where they feel unfairly treated is by the traditional banking system. They have a hope that there's more fairness in the future of these alternative asset platforms. Why do you think that is, both of you, especially given the, the state of crypto right now with the FTX collapse and others? That those are pretty stark and remarkable numbers. Yeah, I mean, I think to be really fair, I think there's probably going to be some fallout from that collapse. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important thing to think about is like people are done hitting their head against the wall mm. on in in the traditional framework. So and you see this globally, not not even just in the US, but globally where people keep hitting their walls where they feel like there's inequalities and loans and funding and debt and predatory policies. They are actively trying to figure out what's next. And they're doing that as groups of people as well. You know, it's not just like they're waiting for someone to figure it out. They're out. Black, Hispanic, LGBTQ people, communities are out creating Web3 wealth enacting opportunities for others to to be a part of as well. So I think we're at the beginning of that evolution, mm -hmm. but there is definitely an evolution coming because enough people are raising their hands and saying like, no more of this. That's really interesting. And Dami, you also have done a, a lot of work in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and the data that we found there with you. Absolutely. I mean, we definitely see these kinds of inequities extending into the workplace. We actually ran last year, the Harris Poll and Hugh ran a report looking at diversity and inclusion in the workplace and, and had some very interesting findings there. When we're looking specifically at BIPOC employees, just two in 10 actually believe that their firms are making a really good effort to increase awareness about racial bias, ensure disciplinary action for discrimination and racism, and increase transparency around diversity and equity initiatives, as well as accountability. On top of that, we've got about two thirds of employees that agree that wage gaps and workplace discrimination are still problems in the U.S. workforce. Black Americans are actually more likely to strongly agree that the wage gap is not a problem. And this is pretty high, about 43% compared to white Americans who say this 32% of the time. So that's an 11 point difference. And then on top of that, you've also got black Americans who are more likely to strongly disagree that workplace discrimination is not a problem. So 43% versus 27% of white Americans. So an even larger gap of about 16%. When we're just, you know, considering that even further as well, I think it's about 90% of 
BIPOC employees, nearly nine in 10 of them are reporting that their companies haven't invested financially in recruiting or promoting racially diverse employees. And only a fifth of them are saying that their companies have actually done a really good job about making an effort to speak up on social issues, things related to social impact that affect racial and ethnic minority communities. So there's a lot of work to be done in the workplace as well, when especially when we're thinking about things like financial equity, because if the wage gap is a problem, that's also contributing to a lot of the inequities that we're seeing in other places like investing and, and questions about systemic racism too. Right. Now, that's the, the view from employees, from BIPOC yes. employees. What are, what are HR directors saying? HR has a surprisingly different perspective. And that was uh, something I thought was a really interesting finding from this study. And especially as we've started to do repeating waves of this, that sort of discrepancy has remained. 80% of HR directors report that their companies actually have implemented DNI initiatives. And when you compare this to the 25% of BIPOC employees who say they aren't aware of them, that's quite the gap. Um, on top right. of that, 41% of HR directors report that there is documentation on how salaries are determined. So ways for employees to figure out, you know, what my wage is going to be, but nearly 70% of employees of color disagree that that exists at their workplace. So there's quite a gap in terms of who knows what knowledge exists and how accessible and transparent that knowledge is. Libby, that's pretty, pretty dramatic, right? Two different views of, of the problem. Yeah, I think what Adami is saying about accessibility, transparency, and commitment is so interesting because that's what we see in our research over and over. It's like, what is the long-term commitment that you're really going to make? Money talks. What investments are you making? And then what kind of transparency are you offering to the market? And I think, John, we've seen this in kind of our recent research around salary transparency, mm -hmm. at least in the New York market, with Gen Z actually being the most skeptical generation of that <laughs> transparency, just assuming that the companies are going to change the salary range. And so it's also interesting about how do you even validate the transparency to make sure it's coming from a good place. And in this entire discussion that we've been having, I keep thinking back to that 72 number percent number of Gen Z who think there's systematic racism in the system. And then so as an employer, that that's your new cohort, right? That's like right. the new generation you're bringing on. And mm -hmm. so it's like, you really have to tackle this in a really significant way. You can't just be hiding kind of and, and waiting for it to blow over. Things are changing in that way for the workforce. I, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that we also found in this study with U.S. News and World Report was sort of looking at who is sort of sharing responsibility, Libby, to your point, for, for sort of moving forward on financial equity and for making positive impacts in, in communities. And one of the things we, we found I thought was quite interesting was that BIPOC, despite all this sort of systemic headwinds and, and racism, actually has greater trust in the government in making a positive impact for their communities at 53% than business at 47%. But the opposite was true, is inverted with white Americans. They trusted business more at 58% versus the government at 42. I mean, what do you two think about that? I think there's a dependence on the government, or I shouldn't say dependence, but a higher trust in the government among employees of color because it, it creates an accountability system and a standard that all companies have to adhere to. Putting a lot mm. of trust in businesses means that the rules change depending on where you go, depending on what industry you're in. Once you can get something codified into law, you have more peace of mind often that some change has to be implemented whether or not the business wants to do it and that you know there there's a there's a certain standard 
or a level at which a business has to to perform at. Because if businesses are setting their own standards, they could be saying that they're doing a good job. But again, as we've seen, there's that disparity that remains. Employees of color may not actually think that they're doing a lot. When the government steps in, I think it allows those standards to rise to a point where employees of color can actually see change happening and feel that that change is happening. And so I think that may be a reason why we're seeing BIPOC Americans tend to prefer the government step in versus just allowing the private sector to set up its own rules. Libby, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And then also we looked at how much do you trust the following to make changes in advancing equity. And what's interesting there, where you're seeing the the biggest deficit is actually in corporations because small businesses are on top. Mm -hmm. So local businesses, and we know from other research that BIPOC Americans support other business owners of color, especially in the last couple of years. So small businesses kind of are on top, followed by nonprofit organizations and education entities. Local and city governments are over corporations and then state government is below that. So when you think about also government, to Dami's point, I think a lot of it is happening at that local and city level. Mm -hmm. So is my city council person doing something in my community? Is the mayor helping out our community or, you know, doing something like that, that feels very tangible. But the state government, on the other hand, I think it, it is, it does make sense that people would, would rank that much lower in terms of advancing equity, just on the current state of affairs that our political system is under. I think that's really important. And I also think might be maybe important for us to note, how do we take this then to some practical takeaways? Because, I mean, if we just focus on what Libby just talked about with corporations, I mean, Dami, were, were there sort of some signals in the, in the Hugh Harris research about what corporations could start to do, at least in terms of the workplace and mm-hmm. trying to help address these financial inequities? Absolutely. Uh, when it comes to recommendations for what businesses can do, obviously, this is a really complex issue. So the path forward is going to really require a multi-tiered approach. A lot of our findings in Hugh really demonstrated that the challenges across the board that employees of color are continuing to deal with are affecting both their their overall wealth, you know, their compensation, but also their health, their physical and psychological sense of safety and well-being. And so because we've seen a lot of those disconnects grow, we've seen a lot of employees say that, you know, while it'd be great for a company to get it perfect right away, what they think is really important is prioritizing that progress over perfection. And so Hugh really developed this three-tiered strategy that they referred to as a winning strategy. So the W stands for well-being, the I stands for investment, and the N stands for nimbleness that can really serve as a good framework for companies that want to get this right. And so when we're looking at well-being with burnout rates climbing and psychological safety remaining a concern, organizations really need to provide resources that are enabling all of their employees to be able to prioritize their own health. And so those resources have to be communicated consistently to really help remove you know, the stigma around poor mental health, but also help to drive that culture of well-being. And so organizations also need to consider financial well-being as a part of that by instituting and enforcing policies that are driving transparency and pay across job functions as well as job levels to really help ensure that equity in the workplace. When we're thinking about things like investment or, you know, that financial investment by companies, BIPOC employees, when we're thinking about investing in BIPOC employees, I should say, that investment has to be quantitatively measured. It needs to be something that can be tracked and it needs to be something that's reported at regular 
periods. Again, that idea of transparency. And so leaders really should be actively seeking out and supporting other organizations that are nurturing talent to really help build those pipelines of diverse talent. Strong networks can really strengthen opportunities for business growth here too. And so investment needs to be in retention, it needs to be in development, it needs to be in promotion and not just recruitment, which is where we're seeing a lot of the conversation and focus right now. Top of that, within companies, you can also have things like formal career mentors and sponsors that should be a part of that process of ensuring that diversity and that support. And then lastly, when we're looking at nimbleness, policies need to be developed and they need to be dynamic to meet the demands of employees as those demands continue to evolve. And so what's most important here is this idea of feedback. You want to have that ongoing conversation. It shouldn't just be a one-time thing, a one-time town hall where you're getting feedback. It should be an ongoing conversation between employees and HR, between employees and company leadership about what needs to be done to make the workplace an inclusive and supportive place to be. Thank you, Dami. You know, Libby, to kind of finish this off, I'd, I'd love your, your sort of concluding thoughts, but I had to go back to Dami's point about you know, maybe we think this problem is solved, right? There's a little bit of a malaise. And that seemed to be a thread throughout this entire conversation, whether it was the HR directors saying, hey, you know, we put these policies up, we're making it, we're making an, an effort. So therefore, you know, let's tick that box. But I think what Dami's talking about with this ongoing conversation is really critical, right? So how are you as a manager keeping these issues top of mind? How are you promoting representation? How are you sort of continuing to sort of push the company forward, even when you have all these distractions right now, clearly? you know, the, the worst economy in 40 years or higher inflation levels, rather. Mm-hmm. I mean, Libby, where do you kind of land on this? That what was really interesting about what Dami pulled out is you're right. People constantly talk about how do we fill the funnel and how do we recruit better? But what we see across all our workplace trends is that people really want their employers to invest in them and they want mm. Uh, opportunities to upskill and opportunities to be mentored. And so when really thinking about what's the role of the company to be doing that, to be providing more paths and opportunities. It seems like there's a really critical role there, but I, I absolutely love this Hue report. I think, Dami, this is the second year it was done or third year? This is the second year we're actually in the middle of fielding for the third wave right now. So we'll have some good findings for you guys, hopefully before the end of the year. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic study and we'll put it in our show notes, but I really recommend anyone who's at all interested in this topic to go read it in full because it's just, it's really impactful. And to also read the data that we got out from the U.S. News Harris Poll Economic Equity by Numbers, because I think once you you need to sit with these numbers and really kind of understand them and absorb mm-hmm. them to then process like what what are the things that each of us can be doing differently and, and absorb differently to figure out a new system moving forward and and just really try to reckon with that challenge. We'll do that. Thank you to you both. And last thing we'll do is also leave a link to the the panel discussion video that was moderated by Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation. It was absolutely fascinating. You kind of get a public-private perspective on, on solving these challenges. I thought it was one of the best 45 minutes I've spent in a, in a long time. I just want to thank you both so much, Dami and, and Libby, and I hope you guys have a great week as you get ready for Thanksgiving that everybody out there is, is having a hopeful, restful, and, and relaxing uh, week ahead. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dami, our special guest. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks, Dami. <laughs> yeah, love chatting with you guys, and I hope you both have a really great Thanksgiving, too. Thanks. Great. This, thank that's you. it for America This Week from the Harris Poll with Libby Rodney and John Gersma. And hear more, tune in to americathisweek.com. Thanks, everybody.